You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Margarita Montemore about Acts of Violet. She is the author of Acts of Violet, Asleep from Day, and Una Out of Order, a USA Today bestseller and Good Morning America book club pick. After receiving a BFA in creative writing from Emerson College, she worked for over a decade in publishing and social media before deciding to focus on the writing dream full-time. Born in Soviet Ukraine and raised in Brooklyn, she currently lives in New Jersey with her husband and her dog. I loved Acts of Violet, and it is one of my summer reading selections as well as a Buzz Reads pick. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Margarita. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you're here because I loved Axa Violet. It was one of my most anticipated reads of 2022, and it definitely stood up to that. I'm very glad it didn't let you down. I would hate to have dashed your expectations, so that means a lot to me. Thank you. So as we start out, if you wouldn't mind giving a quick synopsis of Axa Violet for those that won't have read it yet. Sure thing. Axel Violet follows the life and career of a famous magician, Violet Volk, who pulls off the ultimate disappearing act when she vanishes in the middle of one of her stage illusions. And 10 years later, she's still gone. And uh, meanwhile, her sister, Sasha, has been left behind to deal with Violet's disappearance, her absence, and continue on her family. And as the 10-year anniversary of Violet Volk's disappearance approaches, some strange things start to happen. Um, Sasha experiences strange sleepwalking episodes. And then there's a podcast that is trying to unravel what could have happened to Violet Volk. Who was she going into all of the different possibilities and theories? And the book is written 
in a multimedia format. So there are chapters following um, Sasha's present day narration, as well as podcast transcripts, articles, interviews, news stories, emails, all sorts of different odds and ends. The format was one of my favorite aspects of it. I can't wait to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. So the other thing about Violet, though, is that her star has not remotely dimmed. The longer she's gone, it almost seems like the more popular she becomes. I mean, she was already very popular, but no one has forgotten about her. Right. I think there is something about when you either disappear under mysterious circumstances or a life or career is cut short, it adds this mystique around a person. And so when you have this this famous pop culture figure who, you know, was a bit controversial and out there. And, you know, she did a lot to make sure that people were talking about her and writing about her in the press. For her as a magician to disappear right in the middle of one of her shows, it's one of those things that I think is going to endure along with her career as a magician. And she also becomes a self-help guru and writes these books. So she creates a lot of hype around herself, a lot of mystique around herself, and even her exit kind of carries through that mystique for, for years to come. Absolutely. And cements her place in the whole magician world or the whole magic world. Yes. And especially when I was doing research for this book, I kept kind of stumbling across this question of where are the women and why why is you know more than 90% of the world of magic male dominated and so i it, it became even more important for me to create kind of this iconic not that there weren't really incredible female magicians that i think you know should be as well known as as the male magicians but i wanted to sort of celebrate this creative outlet kind of through the lens of of a woman and what she could have achieved. Well, that raises the question of where you came up with the subject matter for this book. So let's back up a little bit and talk about how you even got the idea to write about Violet. All right. Well, I was like many, many others, most of us, it was in the middle of uh, lockdown. We were the, the global pandemic. A lot of us were spending a lot of time inside. And I was like many looking for stories to get lost in. And, you know, I needed a break from the the chaos and the bad news. And for me, when my first novel, Own Out of Order, came out, it was very gratifying to see that people found it to be such a positive kind of escape. And, you know, it was a respite for them. And, um, you know, I usually tend to write sort of darker, twistier stuff, but the, I wrote something that was uplifting. I wanted to kind of repeat that and recreate that. And I needed that that feeling too of like, what kind of story do I want to get lost in? And I listened to a lot of podcasts at the time. And personally, I love, of course, I love true crime, but it, in particular, unsolved disappearances, I find so fascinating and, and maddening and I, in between that, I also love, you know, kind of, I can't resist a good showbiz story. And the, I, I guess the pieces came together of like, okay, how can I take these different aspects that I'm interested in and sort of meld them into one? And when I was thinking about, okay, like what, what could be a great showbiz story, but also, you know, like this, this woman goes missing and my goodness, if she's a magician, that like it all just sort of gelled, like what a perfect 
way to kind of follow that type of storyline or those two types of stories within the context of the world of magic as well. Absolutely, because the magic component of it really does lend itself to the story because you don't know, was she in on the disappearance? Did she make herself disappear? Did somebody get her? I mean, I was madly turning the pages till I got to the end trying to figure out exactly what was going on. Mm, that makes me so happy to hear that because uh, I I had the ending in mind and I, you know, I, I really wanted to create that feeling when you watch a really, really well done magic act of, you know, there there's always going to be a little bit of like that question mark or even a little frustration. Like, Wait, how did they do that? But the overarching sense of like, just the wonder and kind of, you know, that that awe of like, you, you can't quite put your finger on it, you, you know, you just saw something sort of inexplicable. So I was following kind of that that feeling throughout. And at the same time, too, this is a great opportunity to like create a, a story about sisters and, um, you know, the an unusual dynamic where, you know, what if you had sibling rivalry where, you know, one sister doesn't want to compete and or doesn't realize she's in a competition and where you have these two women that, you know, just keep butting heads and love each other, but can't express that love. So it was a, a good way for me to sort of build the complexity of, you know, the sister who goes missing, the sister who's left behind to kind of deal with the wreckage and their their history leading up to the present day. That's the part I liked the best was all the sibling dynamics and then Sasha's husband and you were trying to decide like where he fit into all of this. As I kept reading, I was learning all of these different details and slotting them into place. And that was all just very well done. Thank you. Well, let's talk about the format a little bit. Did you decide to write it that way from the very beginning? Did that come about as you were writing? How did that work? I think as soon as I realized that there was going to be a podcast component, then I knew absolutely that there needed to be transcripts of these podcasts. And I thought this will be so fun that. I have Sasha's just regular narrative chapters of like what's happening with her present day. And then, you know, having listened to so many podcasts and really given a lot of thought about the best ones that, you know, the ones that really resonate with me, the way that they tell a story. And, you know, even if we're talking a story that is nonfiction, there is such an art to it. And so I really, I wanted the podcast side of it to unfold in in a really kind of intriguing and satisfying way alongside. And then once those two elements were in place, I realized that there were just, it, it made sense to also have news stories. And I thought it would be interesting to show Violet as she was seen through others. So not just through the people interviewed in the podcast and her sister, but the magazine articles that were written about her and, you know, people commenting online and just all of these different opinions and little windows into who she was sort of using negative space to create this woman that, you know, revealed parts of herself to different people and kind of try to put together the puzzle of who, who Violet Volk was. So as you were writing, did you write straight through or did you write portions of it like all of the letters and all of the emails and the transcript? How did that work for you? I wrote Sasha's sections, which are set in the present day, pretty much sequentially. Sometimes I would go back and, you know, fill in or trim 
I tweak some of the, for example, some of her sleepwalking episodes or different, you know, add in a scene here and there. But for the most part, hers took a pretty straight trajectory. But as far as the different letters and all of the other different elements, it was, it came about organically of, okay, what, what are the different parts of, you know, either their history or Violet's past? What, what's missing here? What do we need here? And then sometimes it would be, there would be kind of shuffling around of, okay, actually, this would be more powerful if it was earlier or later. And with the podcast episodes, that also, I, most of it was written sequentially, just also thinking about in terms of how to kind of build the mystique around Violet Volk. But then there was one or two episodes that originally there was a two-part episode that was condensed into one. And there was some slight reshuffling. But usually, yeah, I, I kind of write rather chaotically and I write kind of different puzzle pieces and then sort of string them together in a way that makes sense, uh, often using either spreadsheets or walls of post-its. Or in this case, I actually had like a crazy wall of pins and yarn and a calendar and all kinds of, you know, images and notes connecting it all together. I can see that because you're all over the place in time for purposes of telling the story, and you're using all of these formats and perspectives. So trying to keep up with it would be hard. Yes. And I didn't think it would be because I'm, I'm just telling the story of these two sisters. And yet, just making sure that I was kind of revealing the right bits at the right times and kind of keeping track of their respective histories was trickier than I thought, but also fun. Oh, absolutely. I bet it was a ton of fun. Yes. I just recently interviewed an interior designer for my behind the scenes series, and she was talking a lot about formatting the interior part of a book. And so I was really thinking about that with respect to your book, because it does make a difference with these multimedia formats, how they're presented. Did you have a say in how any of that was presented or was it just presented to you and it worked and you were good with it? I actually did have a say in it, especially the sections uh, such as the the emails and the podcast transcripts. And I was really thrilled that I was consulted on that because when I was writing it, I actually did research books and there haven't been that many. I think there are more and more emerging now, which I'm very excited about because I love books that take unusual formats. So for me to take that on, I definitely, I did my homework and not just in terms of reading a lot of these books, but also taking a look to see how they were laid out. So I did have suggestions that that were taken. And the final book, I think, I think it looks so, so beautiful. I think the the designers did just a wonderful job inside and out. I agree completely. And we can talk a little bit more about the title and cover in a bit. But I was just curious in terms of, well, one, I think you're right, there are going to be more and more of these multimedia type books written. And I love them. I love unique formats. So I think it's really fun. But I think when you are dealing with a variety of things like transcripts, and emails and texts and news articles, you want each one to be distinguished from the other. So as the reader is making their way through the book, they see one and they're like, oh, I'm back to the transcript, or oh, I'm now reading an email, or I'm reading a letter. And I thought yours was done very well that way. It was super easy to see what kind of format I was reading at what time. Thank you. I, I also, again, I have to praise the, the wonderful, talented people at Flatiron for doing such a, a seamless job on it. 
It is nice. And I feel like it's really fun for me. And I've heard from so many listeners to fill in those pieces, to understand how some of those things come about other than just the writing aspects of it. Yes. And the audiobook, it was also, you know, the a similar process, except much more challenging because Macmillan Audio decided to do a full cast recording and being consulted on that was also so incredible. And, you know, I because I did have thoughts and uh, guidelines and they they took all of my suggestions and then went above and beyond. And so the audiobook has has really just blown me away with just the incredible job they've done with it. Oh, that's great to hear. I may have to go back and listen to it as well. I didn't even think about, I mean, I briefly thought when I, as soon as I had the idea of, okay, we're going to have a podcast element to this book. And crazy enough, I did, like it didn't dawn on me maybe just once or twice of, oh, you know what? This might make the audio book really fun. But once the book was written and uh, Macmillan Audio reached out, I thought, oh, this could really be fun because, you know, people who love podcasts will get a kick out of listening to Acts of Violet. It's like a podcast within a book. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they even came up with the theme song. I couldn't believe it. Oh, now I'm definitely going to have to listen. I listen when I exercise and stuff. So I'm going to have to grab it when it comes out and give it a listen. I love all these creative audiobooks that they're doing. Me too. I've been hooked on audiobooks lately and I get through so many and I just keep adding more and listening to more. And it's just, I, after my, my podcast fixation, I wonder what took me so long to discover audiobooks. Like they've been here forever. Why, why is it just been this year that I've like fully, fully become obsessed with them? I hear more and more people saying that. Mm -hmm. Did any particular female magician inspire Violet's character or did you just come up with her completely on your own? I definitely did my homework in terms of researching the history of magic. And I would say Adelaide Herman, she was, in my mind, she should be as well known as Houdini. I'm not sure if she was quite a contemporary of his or came I, a little bit earlier or later, but she had this incredible career where some of the illusions she performed to this day, nobody's done them the same way that she has. Like she was rumored to do the bullet catch with a firing squad where she caught five or six bullets, where to this day, even the most contemporary magicians, they do a bullet catch with a single bullet. And when she was, I think in her 70s, her entire warehouse of props and animals and everything caught fire and she was left with nothing. And even at that late age, she decided to just start all over and still continue to perform magic. She's just such an inspiring force and uh, definitely, I think, kind of stayed with me as I was as I was writing the book. But I also came across this fantastic podcast called Shazam that was created by two magicians, Carissa Hendricks and Kayla Drescher. It focuses specifically, it was developed uh, to answer the question of what is it like being a woman in the world of magic? So there were a lot of interviews with female magicians and talking about all of the different nuances, things that I would never even think about of what makes it challenging to be a woman, you know, pursuing this creative career, you know, even small things like the vests that they make for for magicians are mostly they're cut for boys or, you know, wallets, they're not for most women's 
costumes. They don't come with pockets and the different obstacles that they face along the way, being women and the expectations and kind of the history of magic where really most women were assistants and treated kind of like props. And so they definitely face that uphill battle of getting the respect and acclaim that a lot of uh, their male contemporaries got. So that was a really, really helpful resource. And I even got to interview Kayla Drescher and she answered my 10 billion questions (laughs) and was just such a wealth of information to really um, help me bring authenticity to the story. And you include Adelaide in your book. I do. I do. Because for me, there's something there's something sad about her story because more people don't know about it. Because, and when I was trying to, you know, when I was doing the research to figure out why, it's because Harry Houdini had a brother, I believe, who had all of these props. And so he was able to kind of continue Houdini's legends because he had, you know, the, the straight jackets and the water tanks and, and he had somebody, you know, like, Houdini had a legacy that could be carried out through his brother, whereas Adelaide Herman, because her entire warehouse of props was destroyed, and because she didn't have that person after her death to kind of continue and further her legacy, that's a big reason why we don't know about her today. So I figured, well, you know, this is one way I can do a small part to to have you know, hopefully raise some curiosity about her. I mean, I hope there's a screenwriter out there that stumbles upon her story and writes just a really terrific biopic, because I, I think that's a story that needs to be told, and I hope it is one day. I think it would be a fascinating story. Definitely. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing this one? Ooh, that's a great question. I think what surprised me the most was how I mentioned before the, the timeline, you know, unlike my previous book, Una Out of Order, where I was dealing with time travel and all of these different kind of, I had to be careful about causality. And I had so many different kind of threads to keep track of here. I had a single timeline and just events happening to, you know, different people to keep track of. And I think it surprised me how challenging it was just to make sure that the pieces were put together in a way that certain elements were revealed when they needed to be revealed. And, you know, and the different aspects of the relationships were kind of uncovered so that, you know, just the the picture kind of gradually took shape in a way that was satisfying. And, you know, so even though I knew kind of, you know, here's the piece that's missing, or here's some of the pieces that I'm intentionally going to leave cloudy, because you want the reader to have questions and still be thinking about the book instead of putting a tidy bow on absolutely everything. That's not my style, at least. Uh, So that was definitely, um, that was a challenge. And also, I knew from the beginning how I was going to end the book. And just from getting from point A to point Z, there was a little bit for me, just some kind of inner inner struggle of, okay, how do we get to this end point that, you know, I know what needs to happen, but 
kind of, there was a, a little bit of kind of navigating to get to that destination. But I, you know, I finally, I did in a way that I thought, you know, really kind of suited the characters. I think that's right. You are left at the end kind of with some questions and trying to resolve them, but I think it definitely does suit the story. And I I do understand that some readers, and it's fine, there are readers that want everything resolved and everything, you know, conclusively answered. But I think for me in the context, especially since we are talking about a magician, what is the number one rule of magic? A magician does not reveal their secrets. And so to honor kind of the code of magic, I felt that it was imperative to keep, you know, a few aces up the sleeve. And, you know, and again, I think it's going to make people think about the book, even if it creates, you know, some ambivalence, or even a little bit of frustration of like, but wait, but what about, I'd rather have people thinking about it, and kind of trying to fill in some of the missing pieces themselves, than revealing the entire picture. So it's like, okay, this is what happened. And then they go on and they they don't think about it anymore. For me, the way that characters live on and the story lives on is to have some of those question marks so that you can imagine, you know, what those unanswered elements look like. I think you're right. I will tell you, I am a very literal and straightforward person. So I got to the end and I was like, hmm. But the more I thought about it, and then I talked with a couple of people who'd also read it and really loved it, I thought, you know, this is exactly how she has to end it. It did make me have to sit with it for a little bit to not be like, I wish everything was totally resolved, but I understand it. And I do think it makes a better book. And I also, I, I did self-publish a novel before Una that had a much more ambiguous cliffhanger ending that was so polarizing that it was, I had people say they threw the book across the room after reading it. I had people say they burst into tears in a good way after getting to the ending. So I learned my lesson in that you can't, well, honestly, I still stand by my endings, but I did learn my lesson that you, you need to kind of provide a certain amount of resolution. And I actually didn't think that I was kind of leaving things so ambiguous. I I felt like, okay, this is, I think there is enough here to provide a satisfying conclusion. But if some readers, you know, I think readers are going to have different opinions about it. So I I stand by it. And I also welcome, you know, any, any negative or positive reactions and understand that, you know, we all come to stories with different expectations. Well, and also, I think sometimes I just have to sit with something for a little bit. Mm. And I think you are right. I think you did provide a good roadmap, but I just had to kind of sit with it to be like, okay, is this where she was going? So it may have just been that I was reading too fast because I was dying to get to the end. But I think also, once I sat with it, I was like, okay, I get exactly what she was doing. It just took me a little bit, but I, I thought it was fabulous. I've been recommending it to everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I always like to, you know, whenever I have these conversations in person, because I'm not going to respond to, you know, Goodreads reviews or anything, everybody's entitled to their opinion. I, you know, I I stand back. But anytime somebody asks me directly, or if I'm in a book group discussion, I will say, you know, well, what would, how would you have ended it? How, what do you think would have been a better ending? And 
I have yet, especially uh, for for my self-published book, I have yet to hear of an ending that I thought would be more appropriate, more powerful. And so that would be, you know, my my challenge to any reader that, you know, maybe Acts of Violet's ending does chafe a little bit or isn't quite what they expected or hoped for. I would ask, you know, well, how how would you have preferred to see it? And and out of genuine curiosity, not as a, you know, throwing a gauntlet, because for me, I truly could not think of a way that I thought, you know, suited everything that I was trying to do with with the story. I agree completely. But I do think sometimes when you have something like this, people may just have to sit with it for a little bit. And I've actually been on the other side of that as a reader. When I read Tana French's first novel, uh, In the Woods, have you read that book? I have. It's been a long time, but I have. Well, I remember one of the kind of propulsive elements, because there's two mysteries in that book. And, you know, I don't I don't want to spoil anything for any readers who haven't read it because she's just a fabulous writer and it's an excellent book. But there there is expectations for some resolution that are very much not met at the end of that book. And I remember initially when I came to the end feeling immense amounts of frustration and just I I felt so kind of like desolate, like, like, I really felt like I got to the edge of a cliff and then just like stopped short. And it really took a while and with me for me to sit with it to understand what her intentions were and understand that she was being so true to the story and the characters and that it needed to be this way. Uh, So I, I respect authors who are able to do that. And despite, you know, the, the mixed sentiment from readers that will always result by, by taking a chance like that. So I, I'm going to kind of live with, live with my, my choices and, you know, expect the, you know, the reactions may be, may be a little mixed and that's fine. <laughs> I think people will thoroughly enjoy it. That's all I can hope for. Well, let's talk about the title and the cover. How did they both come about? It's funny, titles for me are either brutal and take forever and are agony and torture, or they come out just so smoothly and easily. And, um, you know, fortunately, Una was like that. And, you know, as soon as I was like, how about a book about a woman who lives her life out of order? And then I was like, Una out of order, done. Uh, Violet, I think it was not quite so quick. But honestly, it didn't take that long. I do, as well as appreciating alliteration, I do have a soft spot for for puns. And I immediately, once I knew her name was Violet, I thought about how can I create a title that is a play on the word violence? Because even though she is not a violent person, but you know, there's there's a complexity and darkness about her. And so I I felt like in the context, you know, of the word violence, that uh, once I once I sort of stumbled on acts of violence, like acts of violet, that's, that's it, we got it. It's very important that it's a unique title, like I could never name a book 
the magician. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. The magician, the sisters, you know, it's, it's so important that, and I always Google, I will Google book titles. And if there, if there is a title that there is a book, a mystery, a cozy mystery called Acts of Violets. And I did have some second thoughts. I was like, you know what? It's okay. I love it because it's made it so easy for me to remember it because I just think acts of violence every time. And then I'm like, acts of violet. So it's perfect. Thank you. What about the cover? The cover was designed by the same, you know, talented team that did uh, and designer that did the, the Una cover. And I think I love what they did. They, you know, we went through kind of a couple of different iterations, but this was the second one. And I feel like they really captured the the mystery and playfulness of it because I wanted to make sure that it didn't look too cartoony and, you know, too light, but also not so kind of overly dark and mysterious and to like hit that razor edge of, you know, that it's both that it has mischief and it has the intrigue and I didn't notice at first that, you know, I thought it was just kind of the the side of her that's sort of like disintegrating, I thought was just kind of spots. And then when I took a close look and I saw that it was stars, I, if I could do cartwheels, I would have done cartwheels. I just, I thought those details were, um, were so, so clever and so well done. And, and I also appreciate that I always prefer kind of for my for my books a solid font not a script font just because it's easier to read for me and I prefer not having um, photorealistic uh, or photographs of people in my covers or at least where you can see faces because I want my readers to be able to imagine what the characters look like I don't want them to have here is your this is what this character looks like so you know those key criteria or suggestions like there Flatiron is just so terrific about you know incorporating my my little bugaboos and um just creating these wonderful wonderful covers so I'm I'm thrilled and I'm very picky about book covers and to have two book covers that you know for me objectively I find so eye-catching I feel just very fortunate Well, I agree. They are very eye-catching and they kind of coordinate with each other a little bit. So I always think that's kind of nice too. Yes, definitely. You want the the books to sort of feel like they could kind of get along together or, you know, be displayed next to each other. And again, I think, yeah, there's, there's like a little bit of intrigue and playfulness that sort of puts them on a similar wavelength, which is great. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? I have been on a tear. Um, there are some really fantastic debut novels that I, you know, I love supporting debut authors. And there are a couple I have to rave about. One is called Jobs for Girls with Artistic Flair by June Gervais. Uh, it's about a young woman in 1980s Long Island who wants to become a tattoo artist. Of course, that was between my love of the 80s and, you know, interesting outlets. I I just thought it was a really wonderful coming of age story. And Gervais is definitely a writer to watch. And another great debut is The Bartender's Cure by Wesley Stratton. 
And Wesley actually, she worked as a bartender. So this is also a coming of age story about a bartender in uh, New York and present day New York. And the wonderful thing about this book is that it incorporates all of this great history and fun facts and lore surrounding cocktails and kind of the world of bartending and drinking. So, you know, you feel like while reading this just gorgeously written story, you're also learning a lot about kind of the culture of bartending and, you know, mixology, whatever you want to call it. I also recently, I actually just, just late last night finished uh, The Likeness, uh, Tana French's second novel, which I thought was phenomenal. I have had people recommending it to me for years. So I'm glad I finally just dove into that one. And uh, the books I've been raving about to everybody who will listen, uh, School for Good Mothers by Jasmine Chan, The Other Black Girl by Zakia Delilah Harris, and The Echo Wife, Sarah Gailey. Those are three that, three of like my top reads of the year so far. So many good books. I feel like 2022 is an amazing year for books. Absolutely. And the year is only half over. I'm so excited to read and listen to many, many more great stories. I agree completely. Well, Margarita, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really loved hearing more about Acts of Violet and how it all came about. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hello. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, 
please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.